Stella. Sunny Stella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. Welcome to episode five. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Tonight we're going to be discussing first some new news about Fringeworthy and some of the developments in it. And then we're going to be talking about some interesting things that happen behind the scenes. How Help the GM a little bit here in running his campaign. First off, John, I've been seeing a lot of emails about Savage Fringeworthy. And even Richard has been getting involved in this. So why don't you bring up up to speed about what's going on with uh, Savage Worlds and not only Fringeworthy, but also all the other games produced by TriTech. We're producing three Savage Worlds versions of TriTech games. Uh, Bureau 13, Stalking the Night Fantastic, uh, Fringeworthy, and Incursion. Uh, right now we've got a lot of uh, work done uh, in creating a you know, necessary background and necessary... Uh, uh, Sarah's World uh, edges and hindrances and so forth that will be appropriate to the games. But we're going to do a little playtesting and some uh, some new uh, concepts for Savage Worlds. The, the goal is to get these the three games out by Gen Con next year. Whether or not we actually get get them there, we're going to do our, do our dangdest to get them done, or at least get at least one or two of them ready for Gen Con. Okay, according to the emails, you've been using this term plot point. This is a specialized book that's released for Savage Worlds that isn't like a full game, right? The plot point books are sort of like campaign books, but they're also they're different. They also provide an initial set of adventures that where the GM can run his players through so they get an initial feel and vibe for that world. A good example is Slipstream, which is a sort of a rocket punk Flash Gordon type world. You're in this strange, different universe and spaceships that fly through space, and there's air in space, and it's just really weird. But it's it's also has several adventures you can go on and and learn how the world works. So, from my understanding, from what I've read, is that the Savage Worlds Fringeworthy will give you everything you need in order to play Fringeworthy in the Savage World system. But what they'll really do is instead of giving you an entire year-long campaign, it'll be a, a sense of story arc for them to start off and complete uh, perhaps a number of them so that they can get the sense that they're moving along through the fringeworthy timeline and then be able to come to some kind of resolution. That's correct. We can leave it open-ended. Uh, Slipstream is open-ended in that the players will never actually confront the, one of the major baddies in the game unless the GM decides to do so. And we can do the same thing with Fringeworthy. Uh, one thought we were working on is that we would actually do a series of first-year adventures, basically year one, year two, year three type adventures. 
year one, we do a scenario where we meet the Victorians. Year two, we do a scenario where we meet someone else. Maybe another year one encounter on one of the alternates. Also, we will, we will include encounters with the French pirates. Now, this may take ten, you know, like ten years down the road, or or for five years, depending on when we decide when the French pirates are starting to show up. We do. We would like to do a Miller uh, scenario, but as as we said, introducing Mellers into your game is always dangerous because because if the players don't do it right, you just screwed over Earth Prime. Assuming Earth Prime isn't already screwed over and we just don't know it yet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, okay, so what we have here is really fairly uh, rudimentary right now. You guys really don't know what you want to do yet, and I can see that, and that's fine. We're going to be looking forward to, yeah. as it coalesces into something that I'm sure will be very exciting oh, yeah. for all those Savage World players out there. Oh, yeah. Actually, one of the things you're planning, I'm planning to do with Incursion, there's actually is a plot point in the original Incursion book. We just need to take it and flesh it out. Other games like Bureau 13, we may actually not do a series of ventures other than maybe a couple small ventures. We are going to probably do a, a Savage, uh, like, like the Roach Motel adventure from the D20 book, uh, maybe some other adventures. But th- there are going to be all different levels and for different levels of characters, like from seasoned to uh, novice to veteran characters. Okay, so Blix, um, maybe you can tell us about the Fringeworthy novel that I've just heard about. Uh, I'm sorry, the what? The Fringeworthy novel. You, you don't know about this? No, I don't. Okay, then I'll do it. Okay. Uh, all right, there's also a Fringeworthy novel. Apparently, there is a writer who lives literally out in the wilderness, and he has written some great fringeworthy opus that he is now going to be releasing through TriTac Systems. And I haven't seen it, but Richard Tohoka says it's just the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I believe him when he says things like that. So I'm really excited about it. He says there's going to be an initial print-on-demand run of 50 books, so you want to get your orders in to TriTacGames.com as soon as you can if you want to get those numbered copies, I suspect. So. I actually have read the prologue, mainly because we were talking about this plot point thing for Fringeworthy. Rest assured that the novel is going to be the novel, and the game is going to be game, and, and near, near between two with a mix. Basically, the novel is written based on the original game. We're talking the, the 1980s version of the game. So it's, it's a much older version of Fringeworthy than what we're dealing with right now. Back when you couldn't use things like rewritable uh, CD-ROM drives because they didn't exist and all of your magnetic media went completely flat and so computers were only useful for writing down your notes and then printing them out on the paper so you could bring it back to IDET. That's right. So it's going to be a different feel from from the D20 version or even the the, uh, 92 version of Fringeworthy. Reading through it, it's actually a really good read. It's actually will give you a different point of view of how things started out, the prologue actually is like in the D twenty game, how they found how they found the rings, how they found the ring and the station and the ice dome. It's basically another retelling. It's sort of like the Batman movies. We we had the Batman of the nineteen sixties. We got the Batman of the of the nineties. Now we have the Batman of, of the twenty first century. Each one's different. Each one tells the Batman story differently. Well, this is sort of like we're telling the Fringeway story again differently, but it's still the same thing. It works. Don't worry about not being canon. It'll be, it's its own canon. <laughs> okay. 
Well, there's there's lots of room for many different versions of Fringeworthy. Every person's campaign is going to be different. My campaign doesn't match anything like the one that's in the back of the book, except, of course, in the issues that are brought up there. There is one Fringeworthy campaign that's not been done yet, as far as I know, and that's the original Fringeworthy campaign, as in Captain Oates, going through and uh, having his adventures with Schmert back when he was the only person who knew about the portal. Yeah. But that's a story – that's for someone else to write because that – as I said, that adventure and that campaign's never been done. But Blix, you had some more to say about Savage Worlds? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask, um, does anybody know anything about uh, – or has there been any talk about whether that's going to be print or print on demand or is there any knowledge on that as of yet? I suspect that depends an awful lot on the people who really want it. Uh, the main reason that – our current book isn't uh, being printed out is because it's all in color and so that makes it much more expensive to print so if the savage world is either small enough because it's a plot point book then it might be more economical to print in color and because i still don't think there's going to be a huge number of people that are going to be buying it but again if we get enough pre-orders it might validate the reason to do that but the Fringeworthy book and the Plot Point books, they're all available on print-on-demand. It just depends on how much you're willing to pay to get it. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't know if anybody had been in talks with the, the company that makes Savage Worlds. If there was, you know, maybe maybe they had a deal, maybe, maybe a deal was struck with them, or maybe we were, you know, maybe somebody was in talks with having those, you know, produced through them or not. No, it's actually we're we're a licensee of Pinnacle Games and Savage Worlds. And we get to make our own, print out our own stuff and, and produce our own stuff. They will help, help give us some advertising space on their own pages. But basically, we do it ourselves. What's is not that unusual, uh, Four Aces, which produces several lines of, of adventures and, plot, and, and some plot point books, does most of their work all online, all PDF. And they're, they've been going gangbusters with their designs and systems. So it is uh, possible we can do mostly PDF, but I do agree that we need to do at least some PO, some print-on-demand hard copies for folks who actually like hanging it in their hands and feeling the paper and smelling the ink and all that good stuff about having a printed book. Okay, that's cool. So, so Richard is going to be using a lot of the – he's going to be recycling a lot of the same art, but is he going to want some new stuff or um, is he going to be what, – what's the art going to be like? be honest we're a small game company doing all brand new art is expensive because we're one of the few game companies out there that actually will pay off the artists first before we pay anyone else off uh so artists get paid uh through our companies a lot of companies you get the fame and fortune contract you're famous if you're fortunate enough if your art gets in the book uh mm -hmm. but we do pay our artists therefore we try to reuse as much of our art as we can some of that art in, in the book was in the original book you can probably spot it too. If you look really, if you look hard, you'll probably spot the original art. It was in the first book. They got recycled. Oh, I, I recognize it. Yeah, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, or be, being an independent, like a true indie uh, game company, it's it's very difficult. It's like some of the stuff that I've developed, some of the game stuff that I've developed, I actually became the artist so that I would have art because I couldn't afford to pay anybody. So that's how I wound up getting into the whole art thing and doing the art was because I, I'd like to say, as I like to put it, I'm too cheap to pay an artist, so I had to do it myself. Yeah, you can't get more indie than TriTech Games. We're the indies indie. 
Okay, so thank you so, uh, for that information. World building. What we're going to talk about is you're playing your campaign and you're you're having your adventures, and your players come up to you and they say, you know, we're out here for like three or four months on this adventure. What's happened since we've been gone? And the GM has to decide then whether he wants to keep it kind of amorphous or he really wants to provide a living backdrop to his campaign because there's lots of things going on. There's politics back on Earth. There's other teams that are being trained and sent out. And, of course, there's politics amongst the various fringe worlds. So that's a lot of work for a GM to do. So the first thing you have to decide is just looking at your players themselves. They go out, they go on missions, but then there's downtime. There's time between the missions, and that all adds into the overall storyline, all the overall timetable of events moving through. So the first question you have to ask yourself is what sort of things would adventurers be doing between missions that would take up time and add interest to their characters and to the storyline? What ideas do you have, John? Well, in the early years, the, fir- the first set of missions are going to be more or less like a shuttle mission. They're going to be spending a couple of months actually training and working up the mission itself, the mission profile and what the goals are, and going through training. So the early years is be a lot of training, a lot of preparation for each mission. The mission You may only get like one mission a year out of a team because there's so much planning and work going involved and in making sure everything's taken care of. As more fringe where they are found, though, you'll, there's going to be a lot of little missions, little things that need to be done that won't need much training, so you'll have more off time. John, could you go back and explain more why it's like why there would only be one mission a year? Why why would it take so long to set up a mission? I'm looking at contemporary missions, like it, people who go to the Antarctic on a mission. They just somebody goes, somebody say one day, well, I'm just going to go to the Arctic and dig some ice cores and, and do this. They need to get, they need to work out time tables. They need to work out what everyone's going to do. They need to work out who's going to take them down there. They're basically, there's a lot of work, pre-planning work that needs to be done before you go off and go someplace like the Antarctic or the Amazon. It can literally takes months of planning to prepare for a mission, especially if you're going someplace you've never seen before, like a like an alternate. You have to work out all sorts of contingencies. So, so if all you have is a few greeny pictures from a little uh, wind-up that went through the portal and back, that's not a whole lot to go on. But you still need to work out and plan what you're going to do when you go through there, and who, and who you're going to contact, what you're going to contact. If you've got any, any information beside beyond the initial uh, initial survey, so it's going to take time and time and training. And if you have some hint of what's on your site, like say you see a bunch of Sumerian-style build buildings. Well, now the team's going to go through is going to get a class on Sumerian history. And so they have a lot of background, some background information about Sumerians and what to expect. Or they see Chinese architecture. Well, the Chinese contingent of the French where they're going to be tre- teaching them all about Chinese customs, Chinese habits, and so forth, so they don't make a fool of themselves when they go through. So like what we talked about in the last episode, 
you're saying that knowing before you go into a world, you want to make sure that you're prepared to integrate well into the society. So you would spend an awful lot of time doing research and training and consulting with experts on the culture in which you think you're going to go in so that you mm-hmm. could do that better. That's correct. But also, and this thing I was thinking about, we were working over this topic, and this is more realistic than you would see in most role-playing games, but say your previous mission, you lost a team member. He got killed. Well, that's going to emotionally affect people. And when they come back, they may actually just be put on leave for at least a, a month, maybe, just so they can come to terms with the, with the loss of a team member. Uh, in Fringeworthy, the characters can go home and deal with their families and deal with their loved ones and deal with what's happening in the world around them. And they may be forced to because there's something bad happened and basically it was, it's decided to keep them on their toes and keep them fresh. They need, need time to, well, come to terms with, with, with what happened. Okay, so you're talking about a lot, awful lot of things that would affect the players personally. Now, is this something that you expect the players to actually role play out? Or are we talking about something where we would make a summary of all the things that we're doing and then the GM would simply say, okay, that's going to take three or four months, so we're going to pick up now three or four months later when you guys are ready to do this. My players, I think, would prefer it that way because they're not much for the whole role-playing out, the boot camp, or going to the library, or even spending time with their families. Yeah, that's that's what our group is like. We would we would probably say, all right, look, this is what we need to do. This is what we're going to do. And the, the GM would say, okay, that's done. It's three months later. And my group would, too, unless, of course, as a GM... I decided to create an adventure. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're told they're, they're going to take off, take two weeks off just for general purposes. They, they had a rough mission. No one died, but people got hurt. We're going to give you two weeks off. And I decided, well, you're going to take two weeks off as a team. You're going to do some team building stuff. And then, and then, then create an adventure around them doing team building stuff on Earth where things probably even get worse than what happened on the previous adventure. But that's totally up to the GM, really, and what happens. Yeah, for, my, for the most part, I would do the exact same thing. So, John, it sounds like this is a sort of thing that you'd be doing in, more in the background, that you would say, this, we have to go visit the library, we have to get trained in Sumeria, we have to get clothes made that'll fit in, uh, we have to perhaps learn how to ride a horse or a, uh, a charioteer or something, and, and maybe learn a little knife fighting because it's the weapons that we're going to be carrying around are going to be more obviously um, uh, Iron Age and things like that. So the GM might say, oh, this is going to take three months. And we just wave and says, okay, so three months have gone by and you've been doing all that sort of thing. Now you can continue on with the adventure. But you see opportunities to role play this, make this an exciting part of the adventure. And that's what we really want to do. That's what this podcast is about, is finding exciting ways of representing that time or giving them exciting things to do while they're not actually actively exploring. So what were your ideas on that? A training exercise to hone their abilities of mission to a society. But instead of doing it in an alternate world, they're dumped in, say, someplace in Africa or South America and it's sort of like a, like a survival situation, but their, their goal is to actually mesh in with the locals and not give away the fact that they are actually are fringe-worthy or whatever. It's basically, a team-building a team experience where there could be, still would be an adventure. I mean, if you, you, know, you dump some people in Somalia, 
well, first off, that's part of the that's part of the ASA. That could get kind of dangerous. So let's say you jump in, say, in an Amazon or something like that. They can still run into problems with bandits and so forth and actually have an adventure at that point. Hey, drop um, them in the east end of London and you could have a serious issue there. Okay, remember that Fringeworthy, on the very basic level, are trained to become infiltrators. They're trained to learn how to infiltrate a society and not get caught doing it until they decide to reveal themselves. Learning how to do it on, the, on your home world is good training. So you don't think that Earth is going to be so desperate to get the Fringeworthy out there that they're just going to shove them out the door like Mother Hen's pushing the chicks out and saying, okay, you guys go out there and find some good stuff and bring it back to Earth. They're actually going to let the Fringeworthy grow as explorers in the hopes that they will actually survive long enough to find something. The first 10 years, Fringeworthy are going to be rare as hen's teeth. Experienced Fringeworthy even rarer than that. I mean, uh, after Team 1, I would figure that Team 1 will take about maybe four years before everyone decides that they're just too valuable as trainers and, and other uses to leave them out, go on the fringe where the fringe is sick for like diplomatic missions and so forth. So Team 1 will probably end up being getting mothballed and turn into trainers and turn into uh, ambassadors, you know, taking off the exp- exploration details because it is too valuable because of their knowledge. Uh, then that means Team Two, Team Four, Team Three, whatever, are going to be picking up the slack, but they can't. But you can't burn through them because you're one with one crystal and three known fringeworthy, and maybe a half dozen. I think there was someone over there from Sayuri when she took her multi-city trip to the UN. So you've got this problem of that there's not very many fringeworthy to burn through. I would figure by year four you might have 20 or 40 fringeworthy to work with. But still, that's that's really a really small number, and there's a lot of worlds out there that can easily chew them up and spit them out. So you you got to treat them as a rare resource. Well, I find that number way too low in my estimation. If you have developed the crystal skill, which is a developable skill in D20 Modern, we should be able to get somebody who's actually pretty good at finding Fringeworthy. Now, granted... There's still only one out of 100,000, which means that there aren't too many cities that are going to have, well, there are actually quite a few cities that have 100,000 people in them, but you still have to travel to them. The range is still only a few miles, and they have to move around. So I still think that we'd be finding more of them than just 20 in four years. Well, I'm thinking 20 that actually are willing to do it. No matter how much money you're willing to throw at them, some people are going to go, no. We had this discussion when we were designing D20 in that not everyone is going to want to become fringeworthy. Firemen, cops, they may turn around and say, I have a dangerous enough job as it is right now. Or I'm too valuable to my city to, for me to leave, leave my job. The armies of every UN country will be sweeped for fringeworthy. So there will be a military component to the fringeworthy, but not a very large military component. Just because they're soldiers... They get ordered, you're fringeworthy, bam, and you're gone. With one out of 100,000 being fringeworthy, there's very few countries that have a million-man army. And if they do, we're talking 10, only 10, which, you know, if That's they right. found them initially, there would be a lot of them. You know, they would they would be more militaristic because of, of the com- composition of the teens. But over time, they would fill out with just regular people from all the different walks <laughs> of life. According to your yeah. story— 
We Lie was looking for everybody in the military, and they were very disappointed when she couldn't find any. It was Sayuri who was doing the scanning, and then she went back to one of her hot potatoes and found Waylay. Oh, okay. Uh, it wasn't the complete Chinese military. It was, it was the division or so that was stationed in Beijing, and they she scanned it and didn't find a single one, and that really had ticked off the Chinese. But Beijing has a population of a million or so, so and she only found Waylay. That sort of says she followed some hot potato leads, but couldn't find them. There's a time limit on how long this thing works. So you, you activate it, and you go around, and then you run out of juice, and you lose the track, and wherever, whoever it was may have moved to a different location by that time, and you've lost them. There's a search component to this as well. It isn't like, bam, you get a radar map, there they are, baby, bing. No, you basically get hot potato, hot potato, cold potato, and you got to pick which hot potato you're going to go after. If you run out of juice while you're using it, you run out of juice, and you didn't find them. If you are fringeworthy... In between going on actual missions, I'm sure that IDET would want you to trade off with Sun Yuri and whoever else is in the hot seat and go around and try to find some more Fringeworthy. There would be a certain amount of time where you'd be revolved out of being an active explorer and being put to the job of finding more explorers. And that would certainly take up a certain amount of time. But we only have one crystal, though, at the start. And how many crystals do, you, do we have by year 10? Well, it depends on, on where you find them and how much, how many you find. We may only have, like, say, 10 crystals by year 10, which can really limit how much searching you do, especially if they turn out to be useful on the fringe paths. What level do you, does a crystal have to be to detect somebody? Can it be any level? Any level. You can use an orange crystal right, well, to find fringeworthy. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that was always our assumption, and, and that's how I remember it. Um, now, my thought is, is that at least in our games, the the crystals were a little more frequent than that. And I, I don't think that's unreasonable, but they were always very low-level crystals. We treated the black crystals. Those were fairly common. And when I say common, they're not everywhere you go. But they were quite common in the fact that IDET probably had 20 or 30 of them floating around by year five or six. Just the number of explorers going out, they come back, they bring them, they hand them in. Uh, orange crystals are were kind of we treated them a little bit rare because we we saw them as kind of unique in the fact you know you can drive vehicles and operate machinery and stuff with them so we saw them as sort of a maintenance thing it wouldn't be something that you would find just anywhere you might find that in they'd most likely be found in worlds where there were uh, actual like mostly only in worlds where there was actually termelon living for the most part at least that's how we saw it so I'm thinking that. As time goes on, you'd have more of a logarithmic type effect. Like you might only have a few people at the year at the end of year one, maybe ten uh, at, at most, at best. And then by year two, you might have thirty. But then things start to ramp up because now you have ten and thirty. You know, ten the first year and thirty people the next year traveling around. So your chances of finding more crystals is increasing. Um, you know, exponentially, and every time more people come on, there's more crystals that you can find, which is more people you can rotate back to the world, and you could even have bonuses for people. You know, you're going to go home here, take a crystal with you, just keep it in your pocket, walk around, you know, just walk around town, and every fringeworthy person that you bring in, you get a bonus. That's uh, that would be my thought on that. So we would give a wealth bonus for finding fringeworthy just because it's sort of taking time away from your vacation in order to go looking for them. Right. In the D20 system, the longer range searches are, have a higher DC to them. 
the Sayuri had like a crystal use of like plus four to her initial crystal use number. If she was lucky, she could get a mile out. More often than not, she were talking like a thousand yards with her crystal sense. So initially, as you get skill levels low, as you get better and better, the skill range will go up. But still, it's a high DC to get out to like five miles. A really high DC to get out there. But think about this. Uh, you tell Idet, you say, all right, well, look, I want to go home and I want to do a little vacation, but I'm going to do some scouting for you. How about you buy me a trip, you buy me a ticket to Tokyo and pay for my room there, and a ticket to Manhattan and pay for my room there, and a ticket to London and pay for my room there, and I'll spend the next three months looking for people in some of the highest volume places, maybe Beijing. Um, so... You're, you know, five miles, you go to the center of Manhattan, five miles out, you might have a million people in that search. So it's just, you know, that's just a, you know, it's a thought. Now, if you don't make that DC roll, you may actually be really unlucky and only get like a hundred yard search. Yeah, but imagine you're riding around on the subway, holding it in your hand, and you're doing your search. That's true. You're, you're holding your hand, you're going through the subway, ha ha, hot potato, and it's gone right past me. My next stop is Bronx. Ah. <laughs> that's true and, and you know it's not going to be easy I'm not saying that you know you're going to go out and you're going to find people left and right but the point of the matter is if you go on this trip and you find say three people that's a big win that's true I would agree with that you have a city a Jamelan city say covers like uh, 20 square miles you got to search that 20 square miles to find maybe three or four crystals that's going to take time and effort, and you may not even find them if you're unlucky with your rolls and so forth. Unless the GM decides you're going to find them, therefore he's just like drinking your chain. It really depends on how many crystals the GM wants you to find during the adventure. You know where we found most of our crystals were on dead pirates. Uh, pirates we killed, of course. You know, we'd encounter a group of pirates, whatever. A firefight would initially break out. We'd kill them, search them, and they always seem to have at least one crystal on them. You know, because they're pirates. They're going around raiding people. You're maximizing your search potential right there. And they're going to be using their yeah. crystal functions to do special things with the fringe paths and other things like that. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense that pirates would have a crystal. That is one of the lo places yeah. that, in my campaign, they found a crystal. The other place to find crystals occasionally is on Master Miller, or actually more correctly, inside Master Miller. But that's a different problem altogether to get that crystal. That's like saying, oh, hey, you know, there's there's a crystal in the heart of a uh, active volcano. Go get it. Yeah, go go right there. But Bruce, didn't you actually have an adventure that took place in the in the crossroads that took place inside an active volcano and there was a crystal in the middle of it? It looked like an active volcano, but it was actually the vent for a power source that was deep down inside this crater. And so it kept the place warm uh, through the aftermath of a nuclear winter caused by an orbital bombardment. And it kept the natives thinking that they were there at this volcano. But in fact, is the entire time, there was a special installation down deep at the bottom of it. But you had to have a special crystal that provided protection against the heat in order to get down to the installation in order to activate the orbital defense grid. So, yeah. So it, there was an active volcano, but it wasn't a real active volcano. But, you know, talking about other things you can do when you're off... Six months after the first mission to meet Schmert and finding out that Schmert wasn't there, but instead a pocket stop, we're going to encounter the Victorians. Therefore, one of the jobs you're going to have is to be a diplomat. 
and go to Her Majesty's court in, on Victorian Earth as an ambassador. So that maybe so you end up do, you doing is becoming a liaison on Victorian Earth. And hey, there's a whole bunch of adventures right there. You have a small team, you know. You're the diplomat corps to Victorian Earth, and you get to have an adventure when something odd goes on or, or happens there. And as we discover more, as we contact more and more of the uh, other races, you get more and more chances of doing the grand tour, of visiting all the various uh, partner worlds and uh, getting to know the locals. So let me ask you guys uh, in the adventures that you ran, because we used to we used to allow this once in a while. How would you feel that Idet would feel about people wanting to take a vacation out on the fringe paths? In other words, we're gonna our group is gonna go out. We're not going on a mission. We're not gonna take any real equipment with us other than our own personal gear, and we'll be back in two months or three months. Mm. Initially, no. <laughs> Initially, they would treat you know, they would consider that you know you guys you guys would never come back. You know, not because you you get hurt, you just never come back. So I would, I would hate, but then again, you can do that anyway on a regular mission. So it's just that with a mission, they figure that's enough there to bring you back. But when you're out there on your own, who knows what problems you can cause? You know, it's it's. I'm not sure. I would. That would be kind of. That's a good question. <laughs> I haven't actually thought. Of it. Considering that actually one of the alternate worlds is called the Hunting Lodge, we th- therefore we know that at least one of the local alternate worlds on the Earth Prime node has been turned into a vacation place, a vacation place for big hunters. Well, we know there's a lodge there. We don't know, in fact, that it's there for people to go hunting. We just looked at it and said, hey, this reminds us of those old hunting lodges in the West and in America and places like that. Considering that there's bison and mastodons and there are those kind of creatures out there, you may get one or two guys who decide, I'm going to be a big game hunter and bring back a mastodon head you know, or something like that. There is that temptation to go hunting in that world. You know, of course, the Tamilan probably didn't hunt. They probably just went there to the view. But humans, we go there to hunt. So there's good reason to go to fringe-worthy worlds just for the purposes of vacationing. Yep. And that also takes up time. If you only have uh, four or five adventuring teams, they might very well be taking up a lot of time not actually actively adventuring, but doing things like vacationing or visiting fringe-worthy partner worlds or going out and looking for other fringe-worthy or even getting involved in uh, uh, their own personal financial endeavors such as book tours, uh, personal appearances. I guess it depends on how the GM wants to run his IDET. The players could be interested in in promoting themselves or IDEC could say, well, if you're willing to do a big tour around the country appearing at various universities and museums talking about the fringe path and encouraging people to support uh, this exploration since they're not going to be obviously paying back immediately unless, of course, the very first world you go to is a huge treasure trove of technology and I don't recommend that, then there's always going to be a problem with IDED as seeing the bottom line you know, for all of the people. Team One is going to be the rock stars. They're going to be the Beatles. I disagree. I think that's the worst thing that can happen. You know, you don't you don't ever want to be in a situation where you're the number two team. I mean, yeah, they were there first. Because they were there first, 
they're the ones that the, the great unwashed are going to say, hey, we want them to come and speak and stuff like that. And while they're doing that, you're out having the real adventure. You're the ones that are out there actually going and, and doing it. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they are the rock stars, but they're not the people who really are doing the job. Team 2 is actually going to be almost as important, but they're probably going to do a lot more of the grunt work than Team 1 will. The way I was looking at it was that Team 1 is, is the, are the Beatles. They're forever, you know, everyone's going to remember them, everyone's going to praise them. Team 2 is the Who. Just as important, but, but not as high up. And still performing as a, as a group when they're in their 60s. That's right. <laughs> While Team 1 is sort of like broken up and basically no longer functional, uh, which, which is probably going to happen. I mean, they're just too important. You know, they're, they're all, they're Team 1. You know, I, I can see Gordon Conrad becoming a trainer for the Fringeworthy, the uh, sergeant major of, of the boot camp you, you go to. Perfect vocabulary for it. Just think of uh, Neil Armstrong. That's a good example. As an aside, Neil Armstrong is actually a perfect example. He just went off the, the map completely. You know, the most famous person, I would say, in the 20th century, he went off the map completely. He didn't want to do any any form of publicity or anything. Second command, Buzz Aldrin has his face in the papers all the time and on TV. And, you know, Buzz Aldrin is the one who actually has the more face time, yet he's not as famous as Neil Armstrong. But my point is, is that Team One is going to be very busy doing things that aren't necessarily going to be exploration. So that leaves the cool exploration and discovery of other worlds and the technology and the, the bio uh, chemistry and all the things that are fun adventures. Those are going to fall to your team, the team that in your campaign that's going to be out there exploring. I think it'd be a really big mistake to uh, treat uh, Team One as be the, the people that all the great things are happening to. Oh, no. They're the face. They're the face team. They're the one that they have the two pretty girls and the pretty guy, and actually later on get a pretty another guy. Uh, but they're the face team. They're the team that they trot around in the nice little white uniforms and the little blue blue caps and show them off. They're the ones that, that uh, have college education and so forth. You're the team that doesn't have that, and you get to do all the grunt work and do all the good stuff. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, speaking of appearances, so these so they go on appearances. What kind of info are they allowed to talk about? Well, there would be some stuff, of course, that are classified. Like, for example, I'm sure they don't talk about Mellers, or at least if they do, they probably don't uh, mention them in their full their full light. Initially, they're not even going to know what they are. So they might talk about there's this mysterious group that uh, that was responsible for the fall of the. Uh, of the Commonwealth, so we're out there hoping that we're going to be able to piece together more of the events that will allow us to do a better job exploring. And that would be all, all you'll get out of the Fringeware Explorers for a long time. Yeah, until you meet the Slargs and the Kegax, we wouldn't even know about the Commonwealth. We're going to know that we got these gateways, we got these pathways, we got these alternate worlds, we got some ruins. But that's it. We don't actually have any information that we can point to and say, aha, there was a Commonwealth. We only know about Schmert, and the only thing we know about what happened is the poem he stuck into Sayuri's head. And that's it. That's the, that's the entirety of our knowledge of what's, what's out there. And, of course, Kenton Oates notes, but uh, they're not going to touch on all the information that you would need. But, yeah, basically, what we get is some bad poetry talking about Mellers and trees and stuff like that and 
no one knows what they're talking about. About what year is it that, that we get a good taste of uh, uh, what's out there? Probably first contact with Slargs, maybe. Maybe first contact with Kegak. We might actually start getting more of the background information that way. That's about, what, five years in? Not even that. Kegak or what, four years in? Well, I found them in my campaign within the first year. I, and not the Kegak, but the Slargs. And um, and they ran into the, uh, the some knowledge about the Commonwealth. Basically, they just deduced that. They kept finding artifacts and indications that there was some kind of a oh, actually I'm sorry the I discovered the Commonwealth from the French pirates the French pirates were talking about it yeah that's true the French pirates would be a source of information if you can get one to talk and not spit in your face I played the French pirates as being much more social than uh, you might see in the book itself and I encourage that actually in the manual because uh, the, since the pirates are such a great uh, group of people who have all kinds of secrets, they're a good way of getting information from the GM into the campaign to say, hey, you know, you ought to go explore this kind of an idea, or maybe you need to go this place or that place. We were talking about how long a mission should be, and what is the reasonable expectation for how long people should be on a mission? Like, should they go away for a week, a couple days, a couple months? Uh, are there going to be any missions that are a year long? Um, my thought on all that is, and usually what we used to run would be missions that generally lasted about two weeks considering travel time. And those were like the general number. There were times when it was a rescue mission where you would go and it would take as long as it takes, but hopefully a week at best, you know, including travel time. It always includes travel time. We actually had one adventure that was an information gathering mission that was like six months long one time where we were just supposed to go and hang out for six months and, and just cache all the information we could cache. Really what it boils down to is what adventure does a GM have planned? If the whole point of, of your mission is to meet and talk to the highest levels of government, you're going to have to come up with a good way of doing it without getting your team in danger, and that may take quite a bit of time. Right, right. And or again, like with, like I was saying before, it might be a very short mission. You know, the, the game master might say, "All right, look, I want you guys to get in and get out as fast as possible." Uh, you, you know, your mission is to go get X or go stop Y or destroy Z and then get back. And of course, those would be ones where he'd be like, "You know, you want to do it as fast as possible, but there's no time limit on it." And I guess what really the the game master has to to sit down and decide when he's making up the adventure, how long do I expect these people to be out there? That should probably be one of his very first questions. Some adventures, just by their very nature, are going to take multiple sessions, multiple game sessions to complete. Say you were talking about the uh, the one meeting the highest levels of government. Each session may be dealing with each level of bureaucracy you have to go through to meet the, the Grand Poobah. Uh, of course, the meeting of the Yellow Horde is more or less, you're going to meet the head of the government in the very first day as they drag you there Tied, you know, tied to the back of saddles of their ponies uh, <laughs> after they capture you. But for most parts and more, more civilized places, it may take time to f first off find out can you even meet the head of government? The Incas, you you may not actually get a chance to meet him. You may meet some flunky as the highest levels you may get, or you might be able to meet the highest levels of government and present your story. It really depends, and you can actually have several role-playing sessions. That's sort of game. There's very little shoot 'em up and blow 'em up. They're more talking to people. And talking games are can can be boring to some folks. So you got to really really decide 
how are you going to approach it? If you have people who want to go shoot things up, then you may want to go for more blasting type scenarios. If you got people who actually don't mind role playing and spending an entire game session and rolling the dice maybe twice, that's fine too. It just depends on your players. It does depend on your players. But, John, you have to make sure that you have a point that you're trying to reach in that game session. You have to have something exciting for them to do, something that's going to make them want to play that particular scenario. Otherwise, you know, you should hand wave. You should say, well, it took you six months, but you finally worked your way through 15 levels of government and you now have an audience with a king. Let's start there. If, If you have something to say, if you have important, exciting interesting NPCs for these people to interact with all the way along the line, mm-hmm. then, yeah, every session can be one of those kinds of layers. It's going to take a while uh, in some cases, oh, yeah. or you can jump straight to the, the royal throne room after saying, yeah, but this took three six months for you to get here. There's also two other considerations, like a mix mash of it. You could do a certain number of levels of government a night and because your players if they're going to send them if they're going to send those characters on this mission and those characters are obviously trained to do something like this so it's a that can be a matter of skill roles and that's not unrealistic because i guess not going to send a bunch of mercenaries to go talk to high levels of government Unless, of course, they're talking to them with bullets. You know, so it wouldn't be completely unrealistic to say, all right, look, you know, tonight you guys want to make some rolls and see how far you get. And then you might want to role play. He might have some encounters. He might have set up like a party that you go to where you're, you're at some high level party that you got invited to. And he wants to see how the players interact just to see what direction he's going to go on from that point, which might develop some interesting plot you know, between the week, between the game sessions, you can say, all right, well, this guy was kind of rude to this other guy. So now instead of him being friendly in this other encounter that I want him to be friendly in, he's going to be rude back to him and it's going to change the encounter somewhat. I, I think that's probably how our group would do it. And I think a lot of groups would probably want to go that direction. Some players, you know, they want to talk everything out. But my experience with most role players is that they don't mind talking some stuff out, but eventually it's kind of like, all right, come on. Give me some dice to roll. Let me kill some people. Let me do something exciting. Every adventure has got to be a mix of action and also uh, skill rolls. I mean, that's just how role-playing games work. And remember, every time that you have somebody that you're trying to curry favor with, that means there's somebody else who's going to be losing some of that favor, and they're not going to like it. And they might be willing to take whatever it takes to get rid of you if they think that you're screwing up their good deal. Right, and that's where the fight in the parking that's lot true. happens or the fight down in the wine cellar or back in your hotel room. Or somebody tries to poison the king and whose fingerprints are on the bottle of poison? Oh, it's your fingerprints, and now you've got to fight your way out of the castle so you can go and, and get on the adventure of clearing your names. So you can come back and continue <laughs> working your way up to the king. Or if you want to be really nasty, you don't know it. But it comes out that there's a Meller working his way up to the king, and he's trying to sabotage you. The Meller can always be there, but I, I almost never are. I, human beings are so terribly, terribly vicious that I, you almost never need to use the Meller in that way. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. But I, I'm just saying that that's actually a really good place to run into one because that's where Mellers like to gravitate towards. They want to get towards the power base so that they can affect the most change as quickly and easily as possible. Oh, you're absolutely right. Don't forget the milk existing stories for plots. Uh, an oldie but goodie, Shogun. I mean, that actually had lots of blood and gore, 
lot, lots of cases where the players have to really prove themselves to the people that above them because otherwise they may end up being nailed to a cross and crucified as criminals. So yeah, there's a lot of excitement and, and but also a lot of talk in that novel as well. So all these things cause a lot of time to go by. So it allows the GM to not have such a burden of the the events that are going on around it. You know, he has he can look and see, okay, so time is going by, but this is what's going on with this other adventure. This is what's going on with this other team. These are things that are slowing things down. So I don't have to essentially run two, three, four virtual adventures while I'm running the real adventure and have to keep track of all that sort of stuff. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. I think it's been a really good discussion on missions and in-between missions and interpersonal relationships between between the travelers and the people that they meet and the people that they have to work with plus we covered a section on gear and vacations and it's been an all-around good discussion so i like to thank uh thank you for listening thanks bruce for doing most of the hosting you're quite welcome sorry, <laughs> sorry. i couldn't do it without you guys and thanks john for joining us Oh, yeah. It's great to talk with you guys and get just talk to hear myself talk sometimes, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I guess this will wrap up Episode 5. This is Bruce Shepard from Atlanta saying, remember, there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John from Seattle, and remember, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and layers coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, don't shoot the portals. They shoot back. <laughs> Games Incorporated.